Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Can you guys, Blake, can you guys hear me out in the back there? Yeah? Okay, good. So, there you have a couple new faces. Um, those of you that don't know me, my name is Sean, and this is Adult Sunday School, and what we've been going over is apologetics. Um, and it'll quiet down in about five minutes or so from all the folks outside, I promise. Uh, so what do I mean by apologetics? Uh, apologetics is the Greek word that means to defend Christianity, to argue the truths behind it. And that's what we've been studying in this class in different uh, degrees. So today, and I've noticed we've had a lot of questions or comments about, well, scripture. How can we trust that this book is actually accurate? How can we know that what we have in our hands is what was given to us from the original authors back then? And that's what I wanted to go over today. I know we've gone over it a little bit before, but just the, the questions that I've got recently about folks um, not knowing whether or not scripture can be completely accurate and that we can trust exactly what's uh, been given to us. But first, let's start off with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, I just want to thank you so much for allowing us to gather uh, here today and that we can study your word and that we can study um, and know that your word is absolutely truthful, Father. Um, just please give us wisdom and insight uh, and grace when we have these conversations. In Christ's name I pray, Lord. Amen. So, does anyone think that the New York Times is a Christian organization? <laughs> well, I heard some laughs, so no. No one thinks New York Times is a Christian organization. So there is a New York Times bestseller, uh, Bart Ehrman, and his book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why, he tries specifically to place doubt in the minds of any Christian who thinks that the New Testament can be trusted. And here's how he did it. This is what he said, quote, What good is it to say that the autographs, meaning the originals, were inspired? We don't have the originals. We only have error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them, evidently in thousands of ways. There are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Well, let's take a look at Ehrman's claims. Is he right? He is in the facts. Yes, he is. As far as they go, there's 130,000 words in the New Testament, and the surviving manuscripts, meaning the handwritten copies that we have, reveal something like 400,000 individual times that the wording disagrees between them. So, Ehrman points out at this point that manuscripts, quote, differ from one another in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there are. Further, Ehrman is an accomplished scholar with an impeccable, uh, bona fide, I mean, he has a pedigree of degrees behind him that are quite impressive. He co-authored the text of the New Testament, fourth edition, it's an academic standard in the field with Bruce uh, Metzger, one of the greatest New Testament manuscript scholars alive at the time. And the Washington Post, another blatantly Christian organization, no, not really, says that misquoting Jesus, quote, casts doubt on any number of New Testament episodes that most Christians take as, well, gospel. Publishers Weekly promises that Ehrman's arguments, quote, ensure that readers might never read the gospel or Paul's letters in the same way again, which is what Ehrman actually wants. Ehrman, quote, exposes the discoveries that sabotaged his faith while a graduate student at Princeton, leaving him with the agnosticism that he has now. So has the Bible been changed over 2,000 years of copying and recopying? Ehrman answers, you want to turn the volume up a little bit, Lucy? Yeah, okay. Yeah, we can turn that up a bit. So Ehrman answers yes, that the Bible has changed significantly over the 2,000 years of copying and recopying it. Worse, the massive number of alterations make it virtually impossible to have any confidence of reconstructing uh, the autographs or the originals. So what are we supposed to do with this, uh, these, these textual critics? And we hear stories of this all the time. By the way, I used to be an atheist, for those of you that don't know me, and this is one of the arguments that I used, um, that the Bible is completely unreliable because all we have is copies of copies. Well, first, let me point out about those copies. Christianity is based on what? It's based on history. It's not based on allegory, and it's not based on myth. Paul Johnson once said, Christianity, like Judaism from which it sprang, is a historical religion, or it is nothing. It does not deal in myths and metaphors and symbols or in states of being and cycles. It deals in facts. C.S. Lewis, as you guys know, one of my favorite authors, he put it this way, quote, 
If these events that I've just mentioned are true, then Christianity is of infinite importance. If they're not true, it's of no importance except as a cultural artifact. The one thing it cannot be is of moderate importance. That's why the radical claims of Christianity have often been made because it's either true because it happened or it's not true. And that's at the very center of faith in Christ. So this answer of is the New Testament or the scriptures that we have in our hands historically reliable, is it an important issue? Yeah, it absolutely is. because It's what we're basing our entire faith on. There have been claims that the Gospels were invented by the early church. Well, that's not even close to being accurate, that the Gospels were invented by the early church. Um, The issue is this. Was the Jesus of the Gospels real, or was he created by its writers? Well, here's a problem with that argument. Again, I used to use that same one with him being created by the writers. First of all, inventing the character of Jesus itself would be something of a miracle. John Stuart Mill, who was an atheist, put it this way. Quote, it's of no use to say Christ, as exhibited in the Gospels, is not historical. And we know not how much of what is admirable was superadded by the tradition of his followers. Who among the disciples or among their proselytes was capable of inventing the sayings of Jesus? Or of imagining the life and character revealed in the Gospels? Certainly not the fishermen of Galilee. Think about it. If you were going to invent a religious figure, would you invent one that dies and rises three days later? That doesn't make any sense. Would you invent one that was completely countercultural on his time that basically caused his own death by what he was preaching? No, no. Nothing makes sense about that argument. How about the apostles being executed for their faith? Who would knowingly die for a lie? And these weren't easy deaths from these men. They were drawn and quartered. They were sawn in half. They were stoned to death. They were crucified upside down. They were boiled alive in boiling oil. Okay, is anyone willing to do that for what you know to be a lie? Absolutely not. So how, how accurate can it be of the New Testament examples explaining the, uh, the apostles and what they did, right? Well, let's go back in our history uh, a little bit more recent. Watergate. Some of us remember that. Some of us were around to remember Watergate. During Watergate, there was a two-week period of obstruction of justice. They knew of a crime being committed, but didn't go to the authorities. Very soon, the first one, John Dean, got immunity from prosecution to speak to Congress. Then everybody was climbing over everyone else to try and get immunity as well, if you guys remember that. This is just under the threat of a small prison term. And I think Chuck Colson got less than a year on his entire term. Yet we see no hint anywhere of any of the disciples cracking under actual physical torture, not just a small prison sentence. See, the objection at first glance is compelling. When we try to think or conceptualize how uh, to reconstruct an original after 2,000 years of copying and translating, copying some more, the task really does appear impossible. And that's the fallacy that is used against Christians that I used to use as an atheist, that it just can't be possible to have an accurate reproduction of the original when you have all this copying going on over the past 2,000 years. The skepticism, though, is based on two main misconceptions about how ancient documents like the New Testament can be uh, arrive in our hands today. The first assumption is that the transmission is more or less linear. Uh, what do I mean by linear? Now, when we were kids, did you guys ever sit in a circle and play that game telephone? <laughs> right? You know, one person would say something and then whisper it into the, the, the fellow's ear next to you and, and it would keep going on. And by the time it got to the original uh, author, what, what they had said, it's, it's nowhere near what they had said. That is not how ancient documents were transmitted. They weren't transmitted orally. They were transmitted written, right? What does that mean? Um, that means that we have an original copy, and then we have a copy from that copy, right? It's not an oral where it can get lost in oral tradition. It's an actual written document that happened to be copied. So that means that it's not linear, but it's actually geometric. So one letter birthed five copies, right? Which became 25, which became 200, and so on. Secondly, the transmission in question was, like I said, it was done in writing, and written manuscripts can be tested in a way that oral communication cannot be. We can actually go back and look at the writings. Okay, as most of you know, um, I received an apologetics degree from um, Talbot School of Theology, which is attached to Biola. 
One of my former professors there was Greg Kokel. Um, he runs a ministry called Stand to Reason. So I'm going to steal one of his analogies here. Sorry, Greg, but I'm giving you credit. Um, this is reconstructing Aunt Sally's letter, okay? The main argument is that we have, like from Bart Ehrman, uh, we have all these errors or all these differences in the New Testament, 400,000 of them to be exact. So let's take a look at that and how that looks. So let's see how this test can be made by Aunt Sally's letter. It's going to help you see how scholars can confidently reconstruct the text from existing manuscript copies, even though the copies themselves have differences and are much younger than the original. So pretend with me, if you will, that your Aunt Sally has a dream. She learns the recipe for an elixir that would continuously maintain her youth. Aunt Sally has the dream for the fountain of youth. When she wakes up, she scribbles the directions on a scrap of paper or a napkin and runs into the kitchen to make up her first glass. In a few days, her, her, trans, her appearance is completely transformed. Aunt Sally looks like she's you know, in her latter teens, early 20s again. She's a picture of radiant youth because her daily dose of what comes to be known as Aunt Sally's secret sauce. Sally's so excited, she sends handwritten instructions to her three bridge partners. So, you know, Aunt Sally is still in the technological dark ages. No scanning, no photocopier, no email. Giving detailed instructions on how to make uh, her secret sauce. They, in turn, make copies, which each sends to ten of her own friends. All's going well until one day, Aunt Sally's pet schnauzer eats the original copy of the recipe. Sally's beside herself in a panic. She, contact, she um, contacts her three friends who have mysteriously suffered similar mishaps. I guess that's the thing with schnauzers, huh? Their copies are gone too. So the alarm goes out to their friends in an attempt to recover the original wording. They finally round up all the surviving handwritten copies, 26 in all by, now, by this time. When they spread them out on the kitchen table, they immediately notice some differences. 23 of the copies are exactly the same. One has a misspelled word. The one has two phrases inverted, mix then chop instead of chop then mix. And one includes an ingredient that none of the others has on the list. So here's the critical question. Do you think Aunt Sally can accurately reconstruct her original recipe based on what we just read? Yeah, I do too. I think she can. Of course she could. The misspelled words can easily be corrected. It's just a misspelling. The single inverted phrase, because there was only one, can be repaired. And the extra ingredient, since it's the only extra ingredient in her 26 remaining copies, yeah, that can be ignored. So you can say that one wasn't in the original. Even with more numerous or more diverse variations, the original can still be reconstructed with a high level of confidence, given the right evidence in the text. The misspelling would be obvious errors. That's not that big a deal, right? The inversions would stand out, and they would easily be restored. And the conclusion draw that's more plausible that one word or sentence be accidentally added to a single copy than omitted from many. So this story in simplified form is how the science actually works of trying to make sure that what we have in, our, in today's scriptures are what was uh, presented to us over those millennia ago by the original authors. See, these, these scientists named textual critics, they are academics who reconstruct a missing original from existing manuscripts that are generations removed from the original. According to New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce, he says this, its object, meaning textual criticism, is to determine as exactly as possible from the available evidence the original words of the documents in question. So this textual criticism, do we only use it for scripture? Is that the only thing? Right, I see a lot of shaking heads. No, that, no we do not. It's used to test all documents of antiquity. Um, our daughter and, and son-in-law just visited uh, here, and I noticed, I don't know if you noticed, babe, Josiah was reading Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, right? That is an ancient document that using this method of textual criticism that they've managed to replicate because we don't have the originals, obviously. It's not a theological enterprise based on guesses. Um, it's... A, a linguistic, a, a, and it's an exercise, a scientific exercise that follows a set of established rules. It allows an alert critic to determine the extent or possible corruption of any work. So to get an idea of the significance of the New Testament evidence. So let's note for a moment the record for non-biblical texts. I just mentioned Homer's um, Iliad and Odyssey. These are secular texts from antiquity, antiquity 
that have been reconstructed with a high degree of certainty based on the available textual evidence. So the important first century document, the Jewish War, it was by a Jewish aristocrat and historian Josephus, there's only nine copies of it dating from the fifth century, which was 400 years after the original was written. And I used it in school. It was a required reading. They, they absolutely trusted that what I was reading was the Antiquities by Josephus. Tacitus' Annals of Imperial Rome is one of the chief historical sources of the Roman world of New Testament times. And it survives in partial form in only two manuscripts dating from the Middle Ages. Theoclides' History survives in eight copies. There are 10 copies of Caesar's Gaelic Wars and eight copies of Herodias' History and seven copies of Plato. And all of these are dated over a thousand years after when the original had been written. Yet we trust these implicitly. Why? Because we're using the exact same science that New Testament critics and textual criticism use on the New Testament. Homer's Iliad, which has the most impressive manuscript evidence of any secular work, has 647 existing copies. But remember, it's a thousand years removed from when the original was written. Bruce's comments put this discussion in perspective. He says, quote, no classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodias or Theoclides is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works, which are of any use to us, are over 1,300 years later than the originals. Hypocrisy much, right? We're saying that we don't doubt any of these uh, antique documents are accurate. And to even say that, well, they're 1,300 years removed from the original. The, the normal scholar would say, who cares? We have the accurate transmissions. We were able to replicate the original. I don't care that the nearest one is 1,300 years. But for most documents of antiquity, only a handful of manuscripts actually exist. Some facing a gap, a time gap of 800 to 2,000 years or more from when the original was written. That scholars are confident of reconstructing the originals with some significant degree of accuracy. In fact, virtually all of our knowledge of ancient history depends on documents just like these. So, with that being said, what's the biblical manuscript evidence? If we want to apply the exact same science that scientists use to recreate um, antique documents, what's the biblical evidence look like? Well, I'll give you a spoiler alert, it's stunning. The manuscript evidence for the New Testament is absolutely stunning. The most recent count shows 5,366 separate Greek manuscripts represented by either early fragments, um, Yunkiel codices, those are manuscripts in capital Greek letters that were bound in a book form, and minuscules, which are small Greek letters in cursive style, almost 5,400 individual copies. Among the nearly 3,000 minuscule fragments, there are 34 complete New Testaments dating from the 9th to the 15th centuries. Unkiel manuscripts provide virtually complete codices. Those are multiple books of the New Testament bound together in one single volume, way back to the 4th century though some are a bit younger. There's one, Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, it was purchased by the British government from the Soviet government at Christmas 1933 for 100,000 pounds. It's dated in AD 340. That's very, very old. The nearly complete Codex Vaticanus is the oldest one, dated between 325 and 350. Codex Alexandrius contains the entire Old Testament and a nearly complete New Testament and dates from the late fourth century to the early fifth century. So the most fascinating evidence that comes from these fragments, as opposed to the codices, was one, the Chester Beatty Papyri, and it contains most of the New Testament and is dated mid-third century. The Bodmer Papyri second collection, whose discovery was announced in 1956, includes the first 14 chapters of the Gospel of John and much of the last seven chapters, and it dates anywhere from the uh, AD 200 to even earlier. And the time that John was supposed to append that is right around 8090, perhaps. Now, the most amazing find of all is a very small portion of John chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, and it was discovered in Egypt. And that one was known as the John Rylands Papyri. So barely, it's, it's very small, guys. It's, it's barely three inches square, tiny little fragment. But it represents the earliest known copy of any part of the New Testament, and the papyri is dated on paleographical grounds at around 8117 to 138. I mean, not even a generation removed from the original. Showing that the Gospel of John was circulated as far away as Egypt within 30 years of it being written. 
So keep in mind that most of these papyri are actually fragmentary, right? They're just pieces because it's the nature of it, right? It's, it's a plant-based page. It's going to disintegrate over a couple thousand years. Only about 50 manuscripts contain the entire New Testament, though most of the other manuscripts contain the four Gospels. So when we had, uh, before 1947, do you guys remember what significant discovery was in 1947? Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls, right. Shucks, I forgot to bring it. <laughs> I have a facsimile, a copy of um, Cave 55, which is the Isaiah scroll um, from Qumran. And when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, how far were they to the originals of which they were penned, and who were they penned by? Well, they were penned by a sect of Essenes, uh, which were scribes in Dead Sea, and these were um, basically Masoret um, copiers. How careful were these guys in copying the text? Extremely. You're right, Bonnie. They were very, very careful in copying the text. What would they do? Well, they'd be copying the text, and they had their quill, their pen, whatever they were using, and whenever they would come to any of the names of God, any of the names, they would throw out that pen, write the name of God with a virgin, quote-unquote, pen, as it were, and then throw out that pen, then continue on with another fresh pen. Extremely, extremely accurate in their copying. So what about the variance that, that Mr. Ehrman states that is supposedly a reason why we can't trust the New Testament. And if you guys are wondering, what do you mean? How's that argument even work? Quite simply, it works like I used it all those years ago when I was an atheist. If you have a copy written by men that has all these different variants, how can you be sure of anything in it being accurate? Right, kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater type argument. So according to the manuscript expert, Daniel Wallace, quote, a textual variant is simply any difference from a standard text, meaning a printed text or a particular manuscript that involves spelling, word order, omission, addition, substitution, or a total rewrite of the text. <clears throat> Note that any difference, regardless of how slight it is, is added to that total count. So what exactly are those differences? Well, they can be divided into two separate categories, significant ones and insignificant ones. An insignificant variant has absolutely no bearing on our ability to reconstruct the original text. The meaning remains the same regardless of which reading is in the original. For example, well, over half the variants, yes, more than 200,000 of them, are just sparing er spelling errors um, due either to an accident, as in the I before E, as in, or E before I. Yes, they had those same problems back then as we do in English, the exact same ones, right? Does that change the theology of what the text is saying? No. Um, or different choices of phonetic spelling when they didn't exactly know how to spell a word um, in Greek, krinai versus krinai. A uh, host of others are immaterial differences in abbreviation or style or a definite article appearing before a name, the James or the Christ before instead of James or just Christ. And it adds nothing or it subtracts nothing from the meaning. So that's not really a valid argument that we can't trust the whole. And here's how Wallace sums up the variations. One, spelling differences or nonsense readings, for example, like a skipped line, right? Um, inconsequential word order, Christ Jesus versus Jesus Christ, and synonyms. Meaningful, um, non-viable variants, um, such as a comma before something. Variants that are both meaningful and viable. So Wallace's last category constitutes much less than 1% of all variations. In other words, more than 396,000 of the variants have no ability or no bearing on our ability to reconstruct the original. They don't mean anything. Even with the textually viable differences that remain, the vast majority are so theologically insignificant that they're actually relatively boring and there's no reason to study them. These facts, Ehrman actually freely admits in his book, which he was trying to deconstruct the reliability of the Gospels. He says this, Most of the changes found in our early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology. <laughs> well, there it is. Far and away, the most changes are the result of mistakes, pure and simple, slips of the pen, accidental omissions, inadvertent additions, misspelled words, blunders of one sort or another. He freely admits it doesn't matter on the theology. So then why would you make the conclusion if it doesn't matter on the theology, then all of it has to be thrown out, right? It's just a logical fallacy. 
Wallace's fourth category, those variants both meaningful and viable in a textual sense, is the only one of any consequence. He says, quote, we are talking here about a situation where there are two or more possible readings and the evidence for each reading is relatively equal. Now, do we have some of those in the New Testament? Yes, we do. So here's the analytical scales, or skills, sorry, of the professional textual critic, and they're applied to weed out the most unlikely variants. They have at their disposal a specific set of rules, the accepted canons of textual analysis, and that enables them to resolve the vast majority of conflicts to recover the original with a, a very, very high degree of, of confidence. So ironically, though, this is precisely the point that Ehrman unwittingly demonstrates as he closes out his case against the New Testament documents. So Ehrman's top 10 are these. On the final pages of his paperback edition, that's the one that I read, misquoting Jesus, it lists the top 10 verses that were not originally in the New Testament. And it serves as his you know, nail in the coffin, so to speak, as it were. In reality, it proves his entire thesis false. One third of Ehrman's top 10 list actually is in the New Testament. He was just blatantly wrong about it. After all, Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Luke 24, 12, and Luke 24, 51 are in fact questionable, right? They do appear, however, word for word in uncontested passages. They're replicated in Matthew 26, 28, Mark 14, 24, John 23 through 7, and Acts 1, 9, and Acts 11. Do you see how I mean, that ends up working, so that really doesn't even matter if they're contested in Luke, that they were repeated verbatim in other parts of Scripture. Nothing of theological consequence is lost by striking any of the variants that Ehrman lists. Even the long ending in Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. You know, the one where entire, um, I'm going to say it, crazy denominations or religions have been found, snake charmers, all that stuff, right? Yeah, you don't want a... You don't want to make a religion off of just one verse pulled out of context. You don't want to make a religion off of one that's been contested, whether or not it should actually be there. But see, then the reasoning comes, the same dumb excuse that I used to use as something like that in Mark 16, 9 through 20. If it shouldn't be there, if we're not sure it's there, how can we be sure that any of it should be there or is, it, or is accurate? That falls apart, though. That's a logical fallacy because you have the same exact science and you trust all these other historical documents like the Iliad and the Odyssey. You trust Josephus' antiquities, but you don't on the New Testament. Why? I have an answer. Because it's going to hold you accountable, right? Okay, so should Mark 16.9 be in there or not? Because some of our Bibles don't. We did the Mark study and women's Bible study last year. Right. And some of our Bibles have it and some of them don't. So I'm going to answer on just pure textual criticism. The evidence isn't there to support it being in there as far as the documents that we have. And if it is there, okay, it's a weird passage, right? But if it isn't there and if it is removed, does it change anything theologically at all that we know about historical Christianity? No, not even close. It doesn't have any theological changes. Playing the devil's advocate. Of course, my bride would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does have implication because, because, I mean, it says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. The whole uh, uh, doctrines have been made about that one verse. Sure. You must be baptized to be saved. Mm -hmm. Right, and then that's, so and that's if where... it's not supposed to be in there, that changes a lot. Not really. Because... Bet, yes, <laughs> I do. Not, <laughs> not really does it, does it change a lot. Because, see, that's the way um, textual or biblical interpretation has got to work. You can't just rip a verse out of context and make an entire doctrine out of it. So what do we know? Let's, let's deal with that one. What do we know about salvation? In anywhere else in the New Testament, is, bapti is baptism a requirement of salvation? Anywhere else? No, not even close, right? What is baptism? It's an evidence of you becoming a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It's a symbolic act. It is not a requirement for salvation. So if we're reading that in a verse in which it disagrees with entirely from what we know, 
what we know to be historical accurate transmissions of the original, then something is off with that. Let me give another example. Um, there are certain books, certain passages um, known as the Apocrypha or the Gnostic Gospels that are not included in our scriptures. Why aren't they included? A number of reasons, but I'm going to give you one example. One main reason is because it completely disagrees with what we know about historical theology from verses and texts that we know to be very, very accurate and included in the original. One such is something called the Gospel, one of the Gnostic Gospels called the Gospel of Thomas. Doubting Thomas, right? Now, there's a passage in this book, and I like the Gospel of Thomas. There's, there's great poetry in there. There's some parts of it that's amazing on how it describes Christ. Um, one of my favorite verses in the Gospel of Thomas, um, it says, split a piece of wood, you will find me. Lift a rock, and I am there. Just showing you know, how Christ's presence is, is everywhere regardless. I love it. It's beautiful. But there's another passage in the Gospel of Thomas, and it describes Jesus as a young boy. On the Sabbath, he was playing down by the river, and he was forming um, little clay birds um, right down by the river. And here's a rabbi that walks by. Why the rabbi's walking on the Sabbath? I don't know. He's breaking some Sabbath laws. But anyways, the rabbi walks by on the Sabbath, and young Jesus, not wanting to get in trouble for, quote, working because he's making these little birds, claps his hands, and then the birds become alive and fly away. So Jesus is not troubled by the rabbi. Is there anything on that passage that even remotely resembles the Christ that we know about in scriptures? So this Jesus is a liar. This Jesus is using magic to try and get himself out of trouble. And this Jesus is disobeying the law of God, right? Not the actual law of God. He disobeyed their written traditions or their, you know, awful understandings of what the law of God is, was the Sabbath. So nothing of theological consequences is lost by striking any of these variants. So um, you had texted me earlier about the likely non-canonical account of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, John um, chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, chapter 11. That one is not found in, quote, the original copies, the earliest version that we have of that story. Remember, he who is without sin, let him uh, cast the first stone, that story. The earliest example we have of that is about 400 years after the originals were written. It may or may not be part of the originals, but does it change anything that we know about salvation? No. Are we taught other messages similar to that? That we are not to judge unless we are held accountable, right? You know, the plank in your eye, basically the two by four in your eye, trying to pick out the speck in your brother's eye. So we have similar concepts of that. So finally, most damaging on Ehrman's list proves just the opposite of what he intends. For all his hand wringing he's, he's trying and the original text is lost forever, his list itself demonstrates it's possible to recognize the most important spurious renderings and then to eliminate them. He's pointing out that we can know which ones shouldn't belong. If, so follow me. If we know which ones shouldn't belong, then therefore we can know which one should. Right? And his whole argument is that we can't know which one should because we don't have the originals. I think he failed with his own argument. He completely um, debunked himself at that point. His own works, misquoting, and also the orthodox corruption of Scripture, prove that text-critical methods, the very methods he uses to critique the New Testament, are adequate to restore the actual original reading. It's proof that the massive number of variants, they don't interfere with our ability to recapture the original. And to use that argument of the telephone game is just false. Because like I said, that telephone game is linear. And when you take a look at you know, what one person said and when it comes back around, I mean, it's nowhere near the same thing. It, it, it doesn't differ by a comma or a definite article. Like it's completely not even in the same sport, let alone the same ballpark, right? And that's not what we're talking about with textual variants. And allows us to weed out the vast percentage of those variants. Otherwise, Ehrman, he wouldn't be able to say with confidence of his top 10 or any verses aren't in the New Testament if he couldn't also say which ones should be in the New Testament. But his claim is, remember, nothing should be in the New Testament because we don't have the originals. He can't make that claim. Are, are you guys with me? How he completely defeated himself? The fact that he acknowledges again in another work, compare the pessimism of misquoting Jesus with the optimism expressed in Metzger and Ehrman's The Text of the New Testament. 
He says this, besides textual evidence derived from New Testament Greek manuscripts and from early versions, the textual critic compares numerous scriptural quotations used in commentaries, sermons, and other treatises written by early church fathers. Indeed, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. What is he saying there? He's saying that early church fathers, um, Ben mentioned one, Origen, today I'm not going to mention what he's famous for. Um, Go back and listen to pastor's sermon. But Origen, um, Tacitus, Thyclides, all these early church fathers quote scripture in their writings, in their commentaries. And these are guys within 100, 200, 300 years of when the originals were written. And guess what? In their writings of quoting the, the, um, the New Testament Gospels or the letters or even Old Testament, and what we find are almost identical, minus a comma here or there. How is that possible? How is it possible that guys quoting the New Testament in their writings a few hundred years are dead on to what we found? Other than what? They have to agree, right? So Ehrman has two books with his name on them that give the exact opposite impression, and both were published in the same year, 2005. Let me read that last thing exists. Uh, Again, if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. In this book, he's saying that we can reconstruct the entire New Testament just from the church fathers. In his other book, The Misquotation of Jesus, he's saying we can't because we don't have the originals. Well, which is it, Bart? Which one? And these are, the, these are the ones, these are the same lies that I used to believe, and this is why I'm passionate, that I used to feed to other people this somebody who's debating the reliability of the New Testament who says, okay, then why is Mark 16, 9 through 20 in there? Okay, so the question was for those listening online, then how do you debate against somebody who's debating against the reliability of the New Testament? Okay, then why is Mark 16, 9 through 20 even in there? And the argument goes, then how can we trust the rest of it if we can't trust that? By the simple answer, we have thousands of other examples of the rest of it. We don't have thousands of examples of Mark 16, 9 through 20. So to say that because we have one passage, one or two manuscripts, I can't remember how many that have Mark 16, 9 through 20, that doesn't necessarily make sense. But by that reasoning, we're going to throw out 5,400 others just because it's stupid. It, um, there's no other answer. I mean, the reliability is fallible? No, no, you're, you're not. I don't, I don't believe you are because you're, you have to make the argument that you are choosing the lesser and choosing to ignore the greater. You're also making the same argument that you're going to choose to accept uh, Homer's Iliad, which has 647 copies. Well, religions are made. Yes, they are. Humanism. Yes, it was. It absolutely was. Yeah. Um, I've had this debate with people before. And oh, so have I. I don't know why it's in there. Because <laughs> I'm that smart. <laughs> Ask my husband. I've got to call my husband. Can you talk to my husband? Well, I, but it just comes to the point where, and I get so frustrated in today's day and age because I want people to be consistent in their thought process. Okay, if you want to say that Mark 16, 9 through 20 should not be in the scripture and it's causing doubt on the Higher historical reliability of all other scripture, even though we have massive evidence for it, we have the most evidence of any historical document ever in history. Let me bring that one up. But somehow you accept the historicity of, you know, Tacitus, Theoclides, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, uh, Gaelic Wars by Caesar, and you accept those. Why? Why are you being logically inconsistent? Pick one. Either reject all. That's what you have to do, or follow the evidence. Use your brain and say, okay, we have massive evidence that supports this. Praise God, we still have the original Declaration of Independence, because I don't know what would happen with that. Right. <laughs> you know, if we didn't if we didn't have the actual original. But imagine, right? Exactly. Mary's, yeah, you're like, ouch, I know, I know. See, what can we yeah. What was the, the verses that you were talking about, Mark? What? It's, it's in Mark chapter 16. 
9 through 20. It's the one where it talks about, you know, um, they'll be able to drink poison and not be hurt. They'll be able to pick up a, a serpent, you know, and be bitten and not be hurt, those ones. Yeah. It, it also makes pretty much the claim what seems in there that you have to be baptized in order to be saved as a, a tenant for salvation. So what can we... ESV. Does it have it in? I don't know. Let me see. Yes, it does. It does? Okay. A lot of them have that one called out. Italics. Yeah. Like manuscripts don't have this in it. Right. It like warns that this could be disputed. Sure. Which it's not the rest of the Bible. Exactly. It's just that one. But. Like I said, it was the same um, argument that I used to use, that if we can dispute one point, we can dispute all of it. But it doesn't, it doesn't work because you're absolutely not following the evidence. And what can we conclude from that? So virtually all of the 400,000 differences in the New Testament documents, spelling errors, inverted words, um, commas, they're completely inconsequential to the task of reconstructing the original. Of the remaining differences, virtually all yield to a vigorous application of the accepted canons of textual criticism. This means that our New Testament is what? It's over 99% pure. In the entire text of 20,000 lines, only 40 of them are in doubt about 400 words. And let me explain this clearly. None affects any significant doctrine. None. So who cares? Really? I, I, I mean, yes. I, was, I, I heard this week uh, a minister on... Uh, the radio uh-huh. that was talking about somebody challenging him because of when Jesus fed the 5,000 with so many fish and mm-hmm. loaves, and then he fed the 4,000. Mm-hmm. And, and this guy was saying they were the same incident, but they were recorded wrongly. <laughs> and this, I mean, right. the, the minister had to explain to the guy, no, there were two different Correct. Yeah. They were. So, so um, I, I think what you're talking about, most of us are going to be challenged by people like this that really don't know the Bible. Mm-hmm. And we have to explain to them two different incidents. Correct. And, and be able to... Uh, you might say minister to them yeah. what the Bible actually says. And, you know. Absolutely. Because most of the time, like me back in those days, they're just taking sound bites that they heard from somewhere, probably Facebook, God help us, um, or, you know, or, or somewhere else about why the, the Bible isn't accurate. One of my favorite um, Greek scholars, a guy by the name of D.A. Carson, he sums it up this way. He says, what is at stake is a purity of text of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing that we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. It doesn't change any of our foundational tenets of Christianity. So our chief question has been, can we reproduce the original New Testament to a high degree of certainty? Even Bart Ehrman, in spite of himself, he actually, he actually demonstrated that, yes, we can. We absolutely can. Okay, so two other cross-checks on the accuracy of the manuscripts remain. Ancient versions and citations, I brought that up earlier, um, by the early church fathers, known as um, patristic quotations. So early in the history of the church, Greek documents, including the scriptures, they were translated into Latin, and by the 3rd and 4th centuries, the New Testament was translated into Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, etc. So why? Well, these texts, they helped missionaries reach new cultures in their own language as the gospel spread and the church grew. Translations of the Greek manuscripts, called versions, help modern-day textual critics answer questions about the underlying Greek manuscripts. So in addition, there are ancient extra-biblical sources, um, things like catechisms, lectionaries, quotes from the church fathers that record the scriptures. Paul Barnett says that, quote, the scriptures gave rise to an immense output of early Christian literature, which quoted them at length and, in effect, preserved them. Metzger notes the amazing fact that, quote, if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, I said this before, 
the, pet, the patristic quotations will be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. So what can we conclude from all the evidence? New Testament specialist Daniel Wallace, he notes that although there are about 300,000 individual variations of the text of the New Testament, that number is actually very, very misleading, like it brought up. Most of the differences, they don't mean anything. They're very inconsequential. Spelling errors, inverted phrases. And I've done this, side-by-side -side comparisons between the two main text families. Do you know what I mean by the new main text family? So we have the majority text um, and then the, the Vatican error, the uh, Textus Receptus, right? And it's where we kind of have a split in our translations of, of scripture. So the majority text um, is where the King James Version comes from. And then the Alexandrian text is where the rest, like ESV, things like that, come from. But it shows a agreement in full 98% of the time. So of the remaining differences, they virtually all yield to vigorous textual criticism. In the entire text of 20,000 lines, only 400 words are in doubt. So has the New Testament been altered? Well, critical academic analysis actually says that it has not. It really hasn't. And then we have other arguments come out which are just as silly about, well, you know, we've translated it into many different languages. So how, how does that affect the reliability of the originals? That doesn't mean anything. Well, how can you trust it that, you know, you translated it correctly? Oh, for Pete's sake. You know, how can we trust that we've translated anything correctly? You know, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Please just be consistent here with your argument. If you're going to want to fall on that one, then you have to believe that we can't know anything about anything in history ever again because we don't have the original document. Wasn't Latin a dead language when they started translating it? No, no, it was not. It uh, no, 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 no. Latin um, really wasn't kind of officially a dead language until I think it was 1972. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even with different languages, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter as far as the original. So obviously, I know you guys aren't going to be able to spout this entire talk whenever anyone um, asks you, you know, about this question or tries to debate you. So let's, let's have a little fun with it, shall we? So what do we do with this information? How, how does it work when somebody comes up to us with that argument that, well, the New Testament's unreliable because of whatever. They're going to enter the variations or they're going to give examples if they're really, yeah, Bonnie. Another question on the Latin. So why in 1972 was it declared a dead language? Because nobody understood it anymore. They just weren't reading it. Nobody was studying it. But it was still being taught. In it was still being taught. Yeah, it was still being taught in college. Was it the people that was speaking? Probably. Yeah, probably. I'd have to look up, but yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, so how do we, how do we respond? Well, do you guys remember when, or some of you do, some of you don't, um, when Alan Schlemann, another lecturer from Stand to Reason, was here for the uh, apologetics conference, and he talks about the Colombo method. Um, I, I was taught by Greg and others back in school before we had Colombo. Um, Socrates used to do this. It was called the Socratic method. So you put the burden of proof back on them, okay? Someone comes up to you and says, well, the New Testament isn't historically reliable. Why? Say they're very well informed. They give those two examples, Mark 16 and then, um, you know, the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Okay, so those two examples, are they somehow, please show me how in the rest of Scripture it completely contradicts and throws out everything else that's taught in Scripture. Well, you can't, okay? However, their argument goes, but because we have these unreliable additions to Scripture, how can we trust anything else? Well, the answer remains. Then how can you trust any historical document that you've recreated in history? Anything. You can't by that same logic and reasoning, right? And that's always been my gripe is to just have folks follow the single train of thought that they're coming on, follow where it's going to logically stand, and then just like with Mr. Ehrman, it completely debunks their entire argument for them. So is it an issue that we have a couple passages that may or may not be in the New Testament. No. Does it debunk the entire New Testament that it's unreliable? No, it doesn't. Are there variations in the New Testament? 400,000, like Mr. Ehrman says. Yes. Do they mean anything? No. <laughs> there are spelling differences, commas, inverted words, indefinite articles added or subtracted, or um, uh, flipping of 
of word order like Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean anything, and it, does, and it shouldn't cause doubt to the actual um, New Testament that we have sitting here before us. So I'm sure you guys have all encountered this objection, right? About the how can we know, or the Bible was written by fallible man. Do we even need to get into that one? I mean, uh, do we, right? That the Bible was written by man. How can you, you know, trust it? Again, by that same argument, any book that you read was written by a man. <laughs> how can you trust it, right? I mean, just, you know, for Pete's sake, be consistent in your objections. Um, so any questions about that? Yeah. Uh, Chuck Missler. Okay. Because we were talking about the Mark passage, I yeah. think it was the Mark passage. There's something he went into about like codes mm-hmm. or like looking at the repetition of numbers. And I think it was the Mark passage. He was looking at the number of vowels, consonants, words. They were all multiples of seven. Or he was going through like it's, it's not to like do theology, but it has it shows fingerprints of a, of a divine creator, and he was, I think it was the Mark passage. So that'd be an interesting one to look at, where it just it was one in a bajillion chances that you could check all of these boxes, and it would take a supercomputer like seventy years or seven thousand years to come up with some permutation of letters that would actually. That. So that was kind of an interesting thing for me to. to so he thinks it should be left in. I the think test? it was that one that yeah, he thinks yeah, yeah. it should be. Um, it was either that one or, or the other one. He was taking one specific. Okay. That was kind of a cool thing for me to see about just kind of seeing God's fingerprints in the writing and, yeah. the, and the manuscripts too. Um, it kind of a different plane. Again, there's no codes that change right. knowledge or anything. Right. Like that. But to just see like, hmm, okay. God's fingerprints are on that, and, and you can, by studying it, reveal those things as well. That was kind of encouraging mm-hmm. for me this last kind of month. That, no kidding. Uh, I know. That would be something cool to dig in on. Yeah. Lucy, yeah? Explain why there's so many versions of the Bible. Bible, Bible on the Hebrew, 68. And so, um, honest answer, money, because each version sells a different copy. And then we're, it's, it's like, why are there so many fishing lures at Sunbirds, right? Uh, I mean, what are, the, you know, are those lures meant to catch fishermen or fish? Fishermen. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, so, yeah, we all know that live out here in Lewis County, what's the one thing that works on Mayfield Lake? Wedding rings. It's the only thing that she sells, wedding rings, right? <laughs> you know, but they sell all the different stuff. Honestly, that's really the sad reason. It's just money. Well, and, and many of the versions has dumbed it down. It's diluted it. Yeah. I mean, and then there are not so much versions anymore as paraphrases, and that's just yuck. I know. Yeah, and, and you can't even and come to, close. Yeah, and that's to then sell to a different audience. Correct. A different type of consumer. Right. So, like, the, the ESV, when the ESV first came out, right, who were they marketing it to? They were marketing it to academics because we all received, anyone who was a graduate student in any type of theology degree received a free copy of the ESV shipped to them to study when that came out. I still have it, the, the, um, the hardback paper one. They shipped me a free version. Why? Because they wanted to, you know, have the the academics endorse it as the most accurate translation. Is it accurate? Yes, it's word for word accurate. Does it read really weird at times because it's word for word accurate? Yes. <laughs> right? There are things in, in Greek that shouldn't be translated very that literally. It just doesn't come across correctly in, in English. And yeah, it's it's mainly just money. Just like when people make all their different study Bibles. I mean, um, I'm, you know, we've only been in the place two years now. I'm finally unpacking my library again. And I have two shelves of bloody study Bibles, like Ryrie study Bible, you know, uh, all of them. All kinds of different study Bibles. But that's really, that's really it. Yeah. You have to admit, I did really like it when it got rid of the thou and the and past and all these things. It, it, it was nice, but, but my, my gripe, um, 
between that, between when, when they changed it from um, Elizabethan English and from King James to New King James Version, our modern English is much more dumbed down than it was in Elizabethan English. And when they would say thee or thou, right, um, in Elizabethan King James English, thee meant all y'all, to quote my Arkansas professor, thou meant just you, right? And, and there was a way for them to do that. Things like that, which we don't have anymore in modern English. Yeah. Are they all 100 percent? Right. No, right. not all of them are. Absolutely not. Um, and I'm going to go on record here saying some of the worst ones is like the message. That thing is absolutely horrible. That should not even be come close to included in a version of, of Holy Scripture. No way, right? Because that one is literally someone's ideas or thoughts about what they think the Bible should say, and then they wrote it down. Yeah, it's a man's interpretation. It, yeah, it's a paraphrase. It's an interpretation. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, yes, like we went over last week with, uh, with Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, they have their own, uh, what was it? Um, the clear water, thank you. The clear water version. Yeah, that one too completely changes doctrines in there. So to, to answer your, your question, Lucy, I mean, are all of them 100%? No, they're not. So what are we supposed to do with that? How's anybody to know? Well, it's got to be put back on us. You got to study. You, you have to. I mean, God's word says, you know, everyone that had their kids in Awanas, what am I getting ready to say? You know, everyone should study to show thyself approved as a workman. Approved unto God, right? You know, you have to. It's up to you. So I'll close with this. I mean, why would we have so many different versions and variants and translations and languages and things with Scripture? What was the very first thing that Satan said? The very first recorded thing that Satan said? Did he really say that? Did God say that? So what was his first thing to do to us? Well, to cast doubt on the actual word of God. So I'll leave you with this. It's a little story, a little allegory about a leprechaun. You know, the green little magical dude, okay? <laughs> so one day you find uh, the rainbow and before it disappears, you go there and you get the pot of gold. Now, if you know the fable behind the leprechaun, the pot of gold is the source of his power. So he's not gonna wanna let it go, right? And this is a pot of gold. I mean, you know, a good stock pot of gold. I mean, what's this thing weigh? Like 800 pounds or something? Like you're not carrying this thing home without a front loader. That's not gonna, that's not gonna work. So the leprechaun, he says, okay, you know, deal's deal. You found me, you found me pot of gold, right? And it's my best Irish accent. And I said, well, I gotta go home and get my tractor and gotta come back so I can tote this thing away. Okay. And he says, well, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, um, little magical leprechaun dude, he lifts up the base of a tree and slides it under there and lifts it back down. And you're getting ready to leave. So, okay, okay. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We're in the middle of the Gifford Pinchot here, man. How am I going to know which tree it is? Oh, no problem. And he takes his little green finger and he marks a green X on the tree so you know which one is going to be your pot of gold. You come back, you get your John Deere or Mahindra, whatever you're akin to. You come back, I'm a John Deere guy, and, and you, you stop in your tracks because once you reach the entrance of the Gifford Pinchot, every bloody tree has a green X on it. How do you know which one was the right one, right? <laughs> exactly. You keep digging up all the trees until you find the stinking pot of gold. And that's what we're supposed to do. We don't just accept that because there's all these versions and translations, so none of them can be accurate. None of them can be right. No, that's not the truth. I mean, if, if you want to believe that the sovereign God of the universe who saved us can't preserve his word, then why are we here worshiping him? That is not the God of the Bible. And we know that we have accurate um, transmission of the scriptures from the originals, minus a comma here or there. So when you read something that you know to be completely off theologically as far as a translation or a version of the Bible, what do you do with that one? Well, don't read it. And don't pass it on. And don't pass it on, right? I.e. the message. This might offend some people, but I'm, I'm sorry. That is not a valid translation of scripture. It really isn't. You shouldn't have to um, change the entire meaning of scripture.
And to make it more palatable. And to make it more, exactly. My bride said, uh, said to make it more palatable. Yes, I mean, if you take a look at some of the harsh, say, hell passage or sin passages in the message, it's not there. It's, yeah, it's very, very light. We've read a couple. I mean, you know, the verse, are you who are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. It reads like a used car commercial. Are you spiritually bankrupt? Are you burned out on religion? Come on, come to me. I, it's so gross. Wow. I mean, it, it, wow. Yeah, it, that's the way I hear it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So any, any others? I think we've been yakking for over an hour now. Any other questions or, or comments? Okay. Well, let's close in prayer, and then we'll, we'll get on out of here. Father, I thank you for your sovereignty and your power that you did deliver your word to us, Lord. And then we can know that what we read is indeed your words. God, as we go about our day, and we have these conversations in our weeks and our months, and I know that they're going to come, um, let us always just season those conversations with grace and we're not in it to win an argument lord but to first and foremost to be able to present the gospel so that you can save in christ name i pray amen